0: Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello,
1: and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Friday, October 29, 2010. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Alan R. Schroeder, M.D., lead author of an article published in the July issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled, A Continuous Heparin Infusion Does Not Prevent Catheter-Related Thrombosis in Infants After Cardiac Surgery. Dr. Schroeder is the Chief of the Pediatric Inpatient Services at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center in San Jose, California. The citation for this article is Pediatric Critical Care Medicine 2010, Volume 11, Number 4, pages 489 to 495. Thank you for being here, Dr. Schroeder.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, Dr. Schroeder, would you please start off by giving us some background for your study? What led you to study heparin for prevention of catheter-related thrombosis?
2: Sure. This is actually my critical care fellowship project. I was a fellow at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford in California, and I was a very active uh, cardiac ICU there. And I was very interested in studying things that are related to you know, most or all patients in critical care. And we had a practice in the cardiac ICU uh, that all infants less than one year of age were placed routinely on heparin 10 units per kilo per hour after cardiac surgery. And the idea was that these patients are small and they have oftentimes have many catheters, sometimes catheters that place them even at risk for systemic emboli. And the idea was that the heparin was thought to provide uh, enough anticoagulation to prevent clots, but uh, hopefully not too much to increase the risk of bleeding. And this was a a practice that our director uh, had brought with him from a prior institution and was sort of anecdotally thought to help, but there was not uh, firm evidence to support the practice. And uh, so it struck me as low-hanging fruit for a good question to try to answer.
1: So what did you do in your study?
2: Well, what we did is we randomized babies. Well, we, First, we started by uh, consenting families prior to surgery. And uh, once consented, we randomized babies to uh, getting either 10 units per kilo per hour of heparin versus placebo. And the 10 units per kilo per hour, uh, again, with some concerns about safety, uh, we did not want to start immediately when they come back from surgery, as, as many of them were already somewhat coagulopathic after being on bypass And so, we left it up to the discretion of the primary clinical team to start the heparin or the study drug, which, again, was either heparin or uh, placebo, sometime within the first 12 to 24 hours. And so, these patients were randomized, uh, and they were placed uh, on the study drug for up to 14 days uh, or as long as the catheters, uh, central catheters were in place. And these are patients who could have either had intracardiac catheters, right atrial, left atrial, uh, or right ventricular catheters, or uh, standard central venous catheters such as uh, IJ subclavians or femoral lines. And uh, we then uh, screened for thrombi using echocardiograms for catheters that were in uh, or around the heart. And then uh, radiology uh, did ultrasounds for us if they were uh, higher up in the IJ uh, or in the femoral veins. And these ultrasounds were done um, usually within the first one to three days post-operative, and then uh, every uh, two to three days uh, after that for as long as the catheters were in.
1: So what did you find when you did this study?
2: Well, what we found was that we had no difference in clot formation between groups we found an, an overall incidence of around 15 to 16% of uh ultrasound proven thrombi in uh in the group and, and again no difference uh between the heparin group and the placebo group many of these uh thrombi were asymptomatic so they were uh, small small clots uh, noted around the usually around the tip of the catheter and basically the the amount of clinical clinically significant thrombi was very low uh, in both groups, so we found about again about fifteen sixteen percent now this is um a little bit lower uh, than some other studies have found, but interestingly a lot higher than than the one study that that looked specifically at the post op cardiac ICU population in kids, where uh, the incidence was, was actually much lower. But that was a study by Heidi Flory where they did not uh, routinely do screening ultrasounds. They just looked uh, if patients had problems, basically.
1: Manifested as swelling?
2: Uh, swelling, uh, uh, catheter, it was, it was not totally clear from the study exactly what indications there were for echocardiograms, but presumably swelling uh, or uh, for intracardiac catheters, dysfunction of the line, or, or perhaps echoes being done for other reasons, and the clots were noticed. But not every patient received an echo specifically to look for thrombi in that study. So the overall incidence of 15 to 16% is, is in the ballpark of what other studies have found, uh, but certainly the, the rate of thrombosis of catheters varies pretty impressively between studies. And um, that might be due to just differences in interpretation uh, of the readings, differences in methods. Some, some studies use uh, contrast phonography. But uh, we had estimated from, we, we pooled um, the existing literature in order to do a power analysis for this study. We pooled the existing literature and uh, found ab- about uh, somewhere between 18 and 20 percent was the pooled risk of, of central catheter-related uh, thrombus in kids. So this was, was pretty close to that.
1: What was your approach to management if you did find a thrombosis?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It was really left up to the primary team uh, with us certainly uh, willing to uh, advise or consult as necessary. but. The idea is if these were small thrombi, um, oftentimes not nothing was done. There was There's always an emphasis in, in the cardiac ICU or in the ICU in general uh, to try to get lines out when they're no longer necessary. So knowledge of, of a clot would certainly uh, increase uh, people's uh, desire to try to get the line out. In one patient, a, a hypoplastic left heart patient, a, a fairly sizable clot was noticed, and that patient was taken off the study drug and placed on heparin at 10 units per kilo per hour. But generally, it, it just led to the idea that, that these lines really needed to come out uh, at the earliest possible time. And that was you know, sort of confirmed by uh, when, when we looked at overall uh, factors leading to thrombi, certainly having a catheter in place for seven days or more led to both an increased risk of thrombus formation and catheter malfunction.
1: One of the things that I've heard uh, debated is that if there's a thrombus on a catheter and you pull it out are you risking embolizing that thrombus and causing strokes or other serious events? Did you have any concerns or incidents of that?
2: Yeah, you know, that, that's certainly something we've talked about or heard about before too, and, and we did not see anything relating to that in our study. Uh, we did not have any patients actually in our study at all that had any documented thromboembolic events, no patients with pulmonary emboli for uh, right-sided catheters, and no patients with systemic emboli with stomach catheters or, or left-sided catheters. And uh, we didn't we didn't do specific imaging to look at uh, end organs. So CT-NGOs, for example, for looking for pulmonary emboli or, or looking closely at, say, the kidneys or other types of angiograms for, for uh, end organ function. So we can't say definitively that didn't happen, but we can at least say uh, that there were no significant clinical sequelae from such an event happening if it did.
1: So what do you think your study means for clinical practice?
2: Well, you know, this is a very, very complex question and um, something that, you know, whether it's a cardiac ICU or a, a pediatric ICU, I um, think that, that we really need more and more studies on. What I think this study was successful in doing was taking an, an existing practice uh, that may have some risks and eliminating it um, by, by proving no benefit. And, and when I say risks, we did not have any obvious risks um, uh, noted in this study, but what we did find, which was somewhat unexpected is that the PTT levels um, in neonates were higher than than we thought they would be for patients on heparin. So, um, I believe that the placebo group for neonates had a uh, average PTT of forty three, whereas the treatment group, the patients on the babies on heparin that were less than thirty days, had a PTT of sixty four, and that uh, was was uh, highly statistically significant. This was unexpected. We thought that ten units per kilo per hour would not have a, a big impact on PTT values, and and it did. And then there was a trend towards increased red blood cell transfusions in the heparin group, not significant, but in in mLs per kilo, uh, the total amount of uh, PRBCs transfused in the heparin group was 8.8 versus 5.6 in the placebo group. So, uh, you know, it it is a potentially risky therapy uh, and it was of no obvious benefit. So, we were able to eliminate that from the standard practice in the cardiac ICU and and the Packard ICU is no longer uh, using 10 units per kilo per hour of heparin empirically. So, but then the question, of course, um, the bigger question of well, what do we do about thrombi? What do we, how do we prevent them? What do we do once we find them? Uh, is is very challenging. There was a an entire supplement to Chest in two thousand eight, written by Paul Monagle that that really tried to address the issue of thrombosis in children, and I think was was a a, a fantastic summary of all of the existing literature, and it's it's complex, uh, and and I think that. Um, What we know is that these catheters have risks. There may be some benefit of anticoagulation in some populations, uh, and uh, the sooner we can get catheters out, the better.
1: Most of these um, thromboses that you found, you found by ultrasound, and they were, as you said, asymptomatic. So do you think we should be routinely looking for thrombi, either by echocardiography or with ultrasound for lines in other great vessels?
2: if we had a definitive therapy that was useful uh, perhaps but I think as long as your operating principle is try to get these lines out as soon as possible. If there's any clinically evident uh, problem, certainly get the line out uh, if you safely can. But I don't think that there's any indication at this point to be doing routine imaging of central lines uh, to try to see if there are asymptomatic thrombi. Similarly, if the catheter malfunctions, as long as uh, there's no swelling, I I don't think that uh, that's a reason to immediately take a line out but it's a reason to try to get the line out if you can.
1: If you have a catheter malfunction and by that I'm assuming that you mean it doesn't flush or you can't draw blood out of it or something like that. Correct. um, Do you infuse alteplase or other thrombolytics to try to to open it up or?
2: Yeah yeah and in in our current where where I'm currently based in our ICU that's we we use tpa Uh, we have a protocol for that and That's if we cannot get a catheter to draw or infuse. Again, when I'm hearing that we're having to use TPA frequently, then I am suspicious of an underlying clot, and I will do everything I can to try to get that line out. The theoretical concern about uh, even asymptomatic thrombi, there's some literature from the oncology world of uh, looking at uh, post-thrombotic syndrome. So, patients with cancer who have had clots, even asymptomatic clots may be at increased risk for post-thrombotic syndrome where, you know, they have swelling of an extremity months later, uh, collateral formation perhaps. And that's not something, you know, that we talk much about in, in the ICU population because usually these catheters are pretty short-term, but that may be, uh, as, as more information evolves on that front, that may be a reason why even asymptomatic clots uh, are a concern. But for now, I, I don't think that um, doing routine imaging, that there's really any, any evidence to support that.
1: Did you see any heparin-induced thrombocytopenia in your patient population?
2: we did not know that's always a concern described more in the adult literature than in the pediatric literature but certainly uh, described in the pediatric literature we did not do any specific uh, platelet uh, or hit testing for the study but because these were high acuity post operative cardiac patients they did many of them did get routine labs and almost all of them had at least one platelet count uh, while on the study drug and we saw no difference in platelet counts between groups uh, we also saw no patients with significantly low platelet counts. So I think there was one or two patients that got platelet transfusions, but that was in the immediate post-operative period and um, did not have ongoing, as we see with HIT, where you get transfused with platelets, thrombosis can get worse and platelet counts don't go up. A few patients that had platelets had increases in their platelet counts. So we didn't see that. Interestingly, it's worth noting, too, that um, the the placebo patients did receive heparin in this group, so our hospital policy uh, is that all lines had one unit per ml of heparin going, uh, so a a much smaller dose than the 10 units per kilo, but everybody, uh, independent of the study drug, had one unit per ml uh, of heparin going through their arterial lines and their uh, central or intracardiac lines, and we actually tracked how much additional heparin each study group got, and it was around uh, 0. 0.6 or 0. 0.7 mLs, uh, or units per kilo per hour. And so, again, much smaller than the 10 units per kilo per hour. But because HIT is described, um, even in, in adults at least, that are getting very low doses of heparin, so like that one unit per mL, it's theoretically possible that we might have seen it in the placebo group as well, but we did not.
1: I want to go back to a point you made earlier. You... Uh, mentioned that the neonates had a more prolonged uh, partial thromboplastin time than you had expected. And you also noted that the patients who got heparin received a greater volume of red cell transfusion than the patients in the placebo group. Was there a difference in the neonatal population? Was there more of the transfusion difference with greater transfusion in the neonates who were on heparin?
2: That's a really interesting question. The uh, there it's a small n. It's something like there were around ten patients in each group, or ten or eight, ten in one and eight in the other of of kids less than thirty days, and there was a difference in. Uh, total packed red blood cells transfused, again, it was statistically not significant. But it was uh, that that difference. So in the total group, it was 8.8 mLs per kilo versus 5.6 mLs per kilo. And the difference was more like 15 mLs per kilo versus around 6 or 8 mLs per kilo, but not statistically significant. But given that the PTT values were that much higher, it's certainly a a concern.
1: Uh, Do you have any other additional comments you'd like to make?
2: No, I, I think that this is just an example of, I think, what should be a, a paradigm or, or imperative for ongoing clinical research projects, which is to, to try to examine things that we take for granted as everyday practice and eliminate them if, if they're not proving to be efficacious. And I hope that we learn more about thrombosis in uh, these very high-risk populations and, and hopefully can find therapies that are effective in reducing them. And, and I think it's also pointed the importance of, of trying to find uh, non-invasive ways of monitoring children and uh, you know, relying on perhaps peripheral blood tests rather than uh, having to rely on catheters to draw blood. But uh, certainly, uh, these catheters are life-saving uh, in many instances and need to be used, uh, but how can we use them safely?
1: Well, thank you very much for talking with us today, Dr. Schroeder.
2: Well, thank you, Dr. Parker. It's been a pleasure.
1: We have been talking with Dr. Alan R. Schroeder from Santa Clara Valley Medical Center in San Jose, California, about the article, A Continuous Heparin Infusion Does Not Prevent Catheter-Related Thrombosis in Infants After Cardiac Surgery, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in July 2010. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Visit www.sccm.org/icriticalcare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker.
0: Join nearly 6,000 of your colleagues from around the world in sunny San Diego, California, USA, January 15th to 19th, 2011, for SCCM's 40th Critical Care Congress. Celebrate SCCM's contributions to critical care medicine over the past 40 years and take part in shaping the future of the society and your profession. Congress showcases the most groundbreaking developments and research in critical care medicine through a variety of educational opportunities, including hands-on workshops, captivating symposia, compelling sessions, and popular poster presentations. Visit www.sccm.org congress for more information or to register or ask to speak to a customer service representative. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for Pediatrics. Dr. Parker is Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.